Good morning. Excuse me while I set up this table and try not to drop my fancy non-iPad iPad. Not as cool as pastor and have high-tech iPad. Uh, today, our scripture comes out of Matthew uh, chapter 11, or no, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 28. So if you guys want to turn there, uh, if you have your uh, physical Bible, you can do that. If you have the app, you can do that as well. I encourage you to do that. And today, uh, if you want, or if you like titles for messages, the title of my message today is Sabbath, Freedom from the Tyranny of an Overworked, Over Busy Life. I feel pretty proud about that. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I really like words and crafting words. Um, and I thought it was pretty clever, but that's just me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Al. All right, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we come to you today after a wild year, desperate for rest, God. Holy Spirit, we've already sang to you, we've already invited you into our midst. Speak to us now. May our ears be open to what you're saying and may our eyes be open to see how you are moving in our midst, Jesus. We thank you. All these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about you guys, but 2020 was kind of a wild year. You know, I've never experienced anything like that. I don't know about you guys, but 2020 was absolutely insane. I think everyone can agree on that. Um, anywhere from, I mean, we, we experienced a global pandemic. We haven't experienced globally. The world has not experienced something like this um, possibly for like 100 years. There's been some pandemics that have come and gone, but not to the scale that's impacted uh, the societies around the world that we've had. Uh, we've had massive forest fires. We've had lockdowns, lots of those, mask wearing or not mask wearing, social distancing. We've had the most divided U.S. election since the Civil War. Uh, we had uh, a raid on the White House. That was wild. A stimulus check. Those were cool. I got lots of good stuff. Thanks, uh, President Trump and President Biden. Uh, we did schooling from home. Parents that didn't, weren't homeschooling, now they're homeschooling. And the homeschoolers are like, ha, beat you. We've been doing this for years. Um, Unending Zoom calls, Zoom fatigue. Who wants Zoom to go away forever? I got great news for you. There's an awesome other product called Google Meet. Check it out. It's the exact same thing, but it's not Zoom. Oh, I got some kids that have been, you guys on Google Meet for school? Oh man, that is the best. You guys have a great school. Um, and just in COVID, in COVID-19, the loss of loved ones, it has been an absolutely wild year. And if you're like me, uh, a year like that leaves you wondering and gasping, will this nightmare ever end? Will this craziness ever come to a stop? When can I rest? When can I be free from this insanity? So the question is, 
how do we find rest? And real quick, I think my chair is just slowly sinking on me. I'm not growing shorter in front of you guys, I promise. I know I'm short, but I think I'm just gonna stand for the rest of my message. So if you're wondering, why is Kyle shrinking? It's because my chair uh, does not like me. So the question is, how do we find rest after this year? How do we find that, that soul-refreshing, mind-soothing, stress-free rest that we all need after 2020? And there's lots of answers. If we just take a moment to look around uh, society and the world around us, uh, the answer, I think, quickly begins to emerge uh, for what the world tells us is a way to find rest, where you can find rest. Um, just think with me about commercials. One, of my, one commercial that blows my mind every time I see it is linking car commercials with Matthew McConaughey. I'm not sponsored by them, but if they want to, that's cool. Um, these commercials are like, it's just Matthew McConaughey walking around this like rich house and like all these people and he's just being cool. And then at the end of the commercial, he's in a Lincoln and he's driving and he's just like, yeah. Or, or if you know who Matthew McConaughey is, he just goes, all right, all right, all right. And you go, man, that is, a, that is the dumbest commercial. But then you think about it, like, I kind of want to buy a Lincoln now. Like, that would be cool. Like, if I, you know, I'd be, like, cool and ritzy, like Matthew McConaughey. I could quote him. Man, I would be classy. Like, that would be great. And there's many, many more examples. I didn't want to spend a lot of time diving into these examples. But just in the mindset of commercials, or if you're like me, if you have Instagram or Facebook, you're scrolling, and then you see an ad for something. So I have, if you see me around church on Sundays, I have a mask that looks like uh, a 90s like uh, solo cup, Dixie cup mask. I saw that on Instagram scrolling and I was like, ooh, that's pretty cool. I think I'm gonna need that for like a year and a half. Actually, I thought I would need it for like two weeks, but you know, here we are. And you see an ad and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, I need that. Like a minute ago, I had no idea what that, that mask even existed. And now I'm like, oh, I need that and I buy it. So thinking about the messaging that's going around in the world around us, um, marketing companies and, their, and the businesses that they work for, the message they often are telling us, whether overtly or kind of the subtext of the message is, buy our thing and your desire will be met. Buy the product that we have, that we have, and then you will get something. And a lot of times that thing is rest. It's, oh, if you get this thing, you'll be satisfied. You'll be good. You won't need another mask. Joke's on me, I bought more. <laughs> and they're telling us that if, if we purchase the thing, they, if we satisfy our desire for the thing that maybe we didn't even know existed two minutes ago, we will find that happiness and rest. And this is not something that happened on accident. This is actually a very intentional shift that's been going on over the last century. And I'm gonna give you a really, really, really brief history of this. And if you wanna do a, a, a deep dive study on it, I'd, I'd highly recommend, it's wild. But in the uh, post-World War I economy, businesses were booming. You know, Henry Ford had invented the assembly line a few years ago, and businesses exploding. And businessmen at the time were like, man, this is great, but the problem is people don't buy things they don't need. They often, just buy the things they need, food, clothing, supplies, and then they're good. And so they thought to themselves, how do we get people to continue to buy? Like, we gotta make money, so how can we keep them buying things when their needs are met? 
And so in that, in that time, in that framework, um, a group of businessmen and Wall Street bankers and some really rich people, they, um, they got together and one of them is quoted as saying this. And this is wild, I'm saying this from up here. I'm like, I sound like a crazy person right now, but this is documented history. So uh, if you don't trust me, Google it because Google is all trustworthy. Um, but this a banker said, we must shift America from a needs to a desire culture. People must be trained to desire, to want things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. That was said back in 1918, 19, somewhere on there, or the 20s. How accurate of a, de- of a description of our world today that Think about Apple products. They release an iPhone and everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's the same thing, but it's a new one. I gotta have it. And you know, next year, another one is coming out. You don't need a new phone. It works, it's fine. Put a glass protector on it. Put an otter box on it, it's good. But the new thing comes out and we go, I need that. No, you don't. You've been trained to desire that. And you, we've been tricked to believe that our desires are now needs and they are on par or above the things we actually need. And so after World War II, that culture like really took hold. The marketing schemes post-World War II, um, they began to use a lot of different techniques um, that were kind of brought to light through the, the war era. Um, and it resulted in the marketing techniques we see today. Next time you're watching TV, if you happen to be and there's commercials, pay attention to how the, the narrative flow of the commercial goes. There's a thing. And, and the beginning is, oh, here's the thing, and now you want it. You need to desire this because it will get you this. And this is oftentimes rest. So for me, the question is, well, does it work? If I get the thing, if I satisfy my desires, if I get the things, if I buy the next iPhone, will I be satisfied? Will I find rest? When I, you know, when I buy that new iPhone, will my desires for a new thing finally subside? Um, and if you don't, if you're like, oh, I don't know about, you know, all this buying stuff, here are, I think I grabbed 12. I had 13, I was like, ah, there's superstition around that, I don't wanna do that. So we got 12 stats for you um, about stuff in America. So here we go, there are 300,000 items in the average American home, 300,000 items, average American home. The average size of the American home has nearly tripled in size over the past 50 years. Uh, and one out of every 10 Americans rent offsite storage. Uh, storage, offsite storage is the fastest growing segment uh, of commercial real estate. The United States has upward of 50,000 storage facilities. So if you're wondering how many that is, that's five times more storage facilities than Starbucks. And we think those are everywhere. Storage facilities got Starbucks beat by five. Take that Starbucks. Um, and for all that square space, there's about uh, seven square feet of cell storage per individual in America. So if every American went out and stood in a seven foot square radius, we could cover every single American with the, the roofing of our storage units. Not houses, storage units. That's a lot of stuff. Uh, 3.1% of world's children, so the amount of children in the world live in America, but 40% of the toys that are out there are owned by the 3%. The average American family spends $1,700 on clothes yearly. Uh, 
and then the average American also throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year. Good job, Americans. Nearly half of American households don't, have, don't save any money. Currently, uh, 12% of the world's population live in North America, Western Europe, uh, but they account for 60% of private consumption spending. While uh, the one-third of the world's population living in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa account for 3.2% of the commercial spending. Uh, Americans spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches, $100 billion, than on higher education. We spend more on our shoes, our watches, earrings, and such than on our education. Americans spend $1.2 trillion annually on non-essential goods. In other words, the things we don't need. So we have bought hook, line, and sinker for we need the stuff. We have desires and we need them met because that will get us where we want to go. But does it work? Are we satisfied? Are we finding the rest we're looking for? There's an organization called the World Happiness Report. Yes, there is an organization out there called the World Happiness Report. It's wild. Check it out. But they, in 2018, um, they did a study looking at the GDP per, uh, of countries. So GDP is just a way to measure how, how wealthy a nation is. Um, you know, how the, they looked at the wealthiest nations in the world and then how happy they are. And they have a bunch of metrics for how they did that. Uh, so the United States, China, and Japan were at the top three in GDP. They were the top wealthiest nations in the world. But America barely managed to make it in the top 20. We're 19th in the world's happiness. China was 86th, and Japan was 54 at the time. So we are the top three wealthiest nations in the world, but we're not that happy. And a study in 2020 found that just 14% of American adults say they're very happy down from 31% who said the same in 2018. Um, so we have a lot of stuff, but studies are saying, mm, not too happy. But as you know, to have stuff, you need more things or more money. If you want more things, you gotta have more money. And that's also holding true in America. That, uh, there was a study done um, a few years ago that said nearly half of the US workers say they routinely put in more than 50 hours on the job each week without overtime pay. I'm sure there's plenty of people in this room who's like, yeah, I work over 50 hours a week, big whoop. You know, that's why, but it's part of, it's attached to that desires culture. Uh, and in 2020, according to a Gallup report, um, or if, if you're like me, you're like, well, what, what's the effect? You know, if I'm working on these hours, how does this impact my life? How is, what does this do to my soul? Uh, 76% of workers reported feeling burned out at least sometimes, with 28% reporting they, they are burned out very often or always at work. That means the majority of the people in this room right now are experiencing some form of burnout. And burnout is described um, as a state of mental and physical exhaustion caused by one's professional life. And in 2019, the World Health Organization recognized burnout as a syndrome stemming from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. How are we doing this morning? I hope you guys are feeling great. You're like, wow, Kyle, you're so uplifting with all these stats and stuff. Thank you. 
Wayne Mueller in his book, Sabbath, Finding Rest, Renewal, and Delight in Our Busy Lives, writes, life has become a, a maelstrom in which speed and accomplishment, consumption and pro productivity have become the most valued commodities. In the trance of overwork, we take everything for granted. We consume things, people, information. We do not have time to savor this life nor to care deeply and gently for ourselves, our loved ones, or our world. Rather, with increasingly dizzying haste, we use them all up and throw them away. He goes on and says, a successful life has become a violent enterprise. We make war on our own bodies, pushing them beyond their limits. War on our children because we cannot find enough time to be with them when they are hurt and afraid and need our company. War on our spirit because we are too preoccupied to listen to the quiet voices that seek to nourish and refresh us. War on our communities because we are fearfully protecting what we have and do not feel safe enough to be kind and generous. War on the earth because we cannot take time to place our feet on the ground and allow it to feed us, to taste its blessing and give thanks. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes just living life feels like an epic battle and a constant war against something. I'm not, you know, my friends or time, I need more money, I need more things, and it feels never ending. To put it another way, to help us kind of grasp what's going on in our world and where we find ourselves in this moment, look at these two uh, compare and contrasting lists of restlessness and restfulness. And think about which one of these two lists oftentimes describe who you are and how you go about your life. Restlessness, busyness, hurry, noise, isolation, crowds, distraction, envy, confusion, greed, discontentment, anxiety, working for love, work as accumulation and accomplishment. To be honest, I think that list I find in my own life can very often describe who I am better than what we see with restfulness. Margin, having space in life. Slowness, how many of you drive slow? I have a Prius, so I'm working on it. <laughs> Quiet, deep relationships, time alone, delight, enjoyment, clarity, gratitude, contentment, trust. Working from love, working as contribution. The late uh, Jesuit priest Anthony DeMello uh, once told the story that I think really helps kind of sum up where we find ourselves in our world today. He tells, a rich industrialist from the north was horrified to find a southern fisherman lying leisurely beside his boat. Why aren't you fishing? asked the industrialist. Because I've caught enough fish for the day, said the fisherman. Why don't you catch some more? What would I do with them? You could earn more money, was the reply. With that, you could fix a motor to your boat and go into deeper waters and catch more fish. Then you would make enough money to buy nylon nets. These would bring you more fish and more money. Soon you would have enough money to own two boats, maybe even a fleet of boats. Then you would be a rich man like me. What would I do then? Then you could really enjoy life. What do you think I'm doing right now? Said the fisherman. The industrialist in that story perfectly embodies the mindset and the experience of our world and the narrative that if you fulfill your desires then you will find rest, that you have to get more, keep getting more, keep getting more, because after you get all the things, after you get enough money to buy all the things, 
then you can rest. And the fisherman says, but I am resting. So if satisfying our desires and the, the narrative that the world and, and the devil uh, tell us and, and, and constantly working to get us to buy into doesn't work, if we're not truly happy and if we're not finding the rest that our soul longs for, uh, then what is the answer? Does Jesus have something on offer for us today? Is there a teaching, a, a practice, something we can do to live counterculturally? And you guys are great question ask, askers today because Jesus does. Let's go back to our passage uh, in Matthew. Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's that same passage uh, in the message translation. Are you tired, worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. How beautiful. A couple notes on this passage. The first is, we are invited. Notice the language that Jesus uses. He says, come to me, take my yoke and burden. Jesus is not commanding or domineering to us in this passage. He's not sitting on his uh, mountaintop view and saying, you need to do these things and do it my way and then you can get, get right. Then you'll find what you're looking for. Then you'll have rest. He stands and he has an offer out to us. He gives us an invitation to come to him, to take his yoke and his burden. Now, an invitation is something that many of us get. I'm sure a lot of you right now have a lot of invitation to grad parties. And you're like, I don't think I can get enough $20 bills to go around. But an invitation is not the end game. If all we did with invitations was get them and walk around and say, I got an invite. I got an invite to the grad party. I got an invite to the wedding. Thank you. Got an invite. People go, well, what did you do about it? You know, you, you got an invite. What did you do? An invitation questions us to do something. It poses us, what will you do? You're, there's a thing that you're invited to come to. Now what will you do? And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's giving us an invitation. So the question becomes, what will we do? Will we accept the invitation Jesus has on offer? So that's the first thing to note in this passage, that we are all invited to take Jesus' yoke and carry his burden. The other thing is uh, a yoke and a burden are realities of life. Notice that Jesus didn't get up and say, hey, everybody, I know you guys are really tired. You know, these Pharisee guys, they keep coming up with all these laws and, oh, they're so the worst. Just come to me, guys. Like, we'll get rid of all that. I'll burn it. We'll all take our rules burn it in a fire pit, all your burdens, burn them up, yokes, get rid of those, that's so 2020, get it out of here. You know, we're, we're just gonna live yoke-free, burden-free, it's all good. He doesn't say that. He, instead, he offers us a different yoke and a burden. He offers us his own. The assumption is that in this life, we will attach ourselves 
to people and things, and we will carry their burdens. Now, Jesus comes from an agrarian, agricultural culture. Um, and so this metaphor and this analogy is often lost on us because we don't farm. Um, so to help us understand, uh, I grabbed a photo and I just want to quickly talk about uh, what a yoke is. That's the, a yoke. It's the wood piece that goes between the two cows or ox. And the way farmers use it is they use it to harness the power of two animals over one. Also, side note, I love this photo because the, the cow on the right looks like he's so annoyed and the one on the left is like, we're having a great time. And so that's exactly what being yoked to Jesus looks like. Jesus is the cow. It's like, this guy does not get it. And the other one's like, yeah, that's you. We're all with one on the left. So the way farmers would, would train uh, ox or cows to, to work with a yoke is they pair a trained and an older experienced ox with a younger, inexperienced, wild and energetic one. And the older one would walk with the younger one in the yoke and teach that one how to walk and carry the burden. That the younger one would learn, to learn how to walk with a yoke as they mimic and watched the older one who was experienced and knew what they were doing. This is the analogy Jesus gives us. And it's so beautiful because we do this all the time with different things. And so Jesus is saying, I know you're, you're, you're hooking yourself up with people and, or things or accomplishments or money and stuff. But you can do that. You can follow me. Learn the on-force rhythms of grace from me. Don't learn it from the world. Attach yourself to me. So that's... So that's the second piece of what Jesus has here is that, there, that a yoke and a burden in life is assumed, that we will have these things. The question is, which do you choose? Do you choose Jesus to, to uh, be connected to him and learn from him how to live our lives or something else? Or in our culture today, do we learn it from trying to satisfy our desires? But the next piece is, what does that look like? What does it look like to accept that offer from Jesus to, to, to take on his yoke and to walk out uh, and to carry that burden with him. What, like, what does that look like? You know, is that just I show up and I sing some songs and like call it good? Is there more? Well, the author of Matthew is a smart guy because oftentimes what, um, even in our, today when, and when you're writing, you, if you make a point, you usually use things to like uh, follow up and make that point even more. So the next two stories in Matthew um, are about Sabbath. So the author of, uh, of Matthew is, is drawing a line and connecting that the, the yoke that Jesus is talking about, the burden, the unforced rhythms of grace, part of what he's talking about, what that practically looks like in our life is Sabbath. In the first story, uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field and they're eating them on a Sabbath and some Pharisees show up out of nowhere and are like, hey, you guys can't do that. That's wrong. And Jesus is like, uh, actually, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, so I'm good. So imagine you were walking through a chocolate chip cookie field, because those are real, and you're on a Sunday, and you're like, man, I just want to, I just love these cookies. I just want, and you start eating one, and Pastor Dave comes flying out of nowhere, and he's like, wrong, you broke God's law. Like, that's what the Pharisees are doing. And Jesus is like, no, guys, like, the rules are not what's important, or Lord of the Sabbath, I am. And then the second story Get this, the Pharisees tried to paint healing, physical healing, as a bad thing on Sabbath. They tried to set Jesus up with a man who was injured, and they said, 
hey, Jesus, is it cool if you heal on, uh, on Sunday? You know, because we're not supposed to do anything. And Jesus quickly rebukes them with an amazing story. And he says, the Sabbath is meant to do good. But what is the Sabbath? Uh, what does it look like? What does it entail? And where does it come from? It goes all the way back to the beginning of, our, of the scriptures, of, uh, all the way to Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 2 through 3, it reads, And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, made, or made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So let's break this down, and this, this passage really paints the picture of what Sabbath is for us. First, Sabbath is a literal 24-hour time period. You're like, no duh, it was right there in the text, Kyle, good job. But that's important because uh, in, the, in the narrative, narrative of Genesis, in the story, God has just been spending uh, a, a day at a time creating different things. And then he, on the seventh day was a, a unique one, uh, that he blessed it and made it holy. So think about that. In the context of creation, God has been creating the world, everything we see in it, and we get to the final day and he treats a literal 24-hour period the same way he's been treating his creation. That Sabbath is a part of the order and creation of the world. It's not something else. It's not that uh, God was going along and he got to the seventh day and he's like, ah, geez, uh, you know, I guess I made everything I need to. I guess I can just hang out and chill and we'll be good. No, it was intentional. He intentionally engaged a 24-hour time period the exact same way that he did when creating everything else in creation. And what was the rest that he engaged in? It says uh, in that passage, the phrase God rested or he rested from all the, all the work that he had done is, is repeated. That's, it's a repeated phrase in that very short snippet. So that's crucial um, that he rested from all his work. But what does that rest look like? Like, what was he doing? Does he just like pull out a hammock and call it good? Like, so like, I don't have anything else to do. The author of, the, of Genesis clues us in by right before that, he says, God finished the work. The rest that God engaged in in the creation of the world and in, in the seven-day creation is that he stopped working. He got to the place in his work. He said, this is good. I'm going to stop. This is good. I'm stopping right here. So the first thing to know about Sabbath, um, one, or the first thing was it's a 24-hour period. And the second thing to know uh, as far as what does it look like, it's, it's stopping. And if you were to take the, the original word and break it down, it, the lit, most literal translation you can get is to stop. Sabbath literally means to stop. And so that's what we see God engaging in in Genesis. But another uh, great way to translate the, the actual word of Sabbath is to delight. And we see God engaging in delight and, and enjoyment in his finished work in Genesis when he blesses the day and he sets it apart. That there were six days that looked a certain way and then there's one day that's, that's blessed, it's holy, it's set apart, it's unique. He delights in it. The author Dan Allender puts it this way. The Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best day of our lives, without question or thought. It is the best day of the week. 
Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. For, so for us today, a Sabbath is a 24-hour period, and it looks like stopping and delighting. So how do we do that? How do we engage in Sabbath today? Because let's not be cute or idealistic or pie in the sky. Life is hard to sit down and say, I'm going to take 24 hours and stop working and delight. That is monumental, like let alone an hour. Like if we got one hour of nothing a week, we'd be like, praise God, that was the best Sabbath of my life. And scripture is like, actually, you probably should do 24 hours. Like it probably is really good for your soul. And we're like, ah, God, I got it. It's all good. But how do we do this? And as, as a communicator today and speaking, I want you to know you're not alone. This is something I've been uh, engaging the practice of Sabbath throughout probably about a year now. And let me be honest, Sabbath is very hard to do. It's not an easy thing to stop and to learn to delight in your work because we live in an environment that constantly speaks to us to keep moving, to keep doing. Don't stop. Keep going. You can eventually stop when you retire. And yet here we are in this tension where Jesus calls out to says, come to me and you will find rest. And part of that is Sabbath. So how do we do this? The amazing and wonderful theologian Ronald Roheiser said about restfulness and rest, he said, true restfulness though, it's a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. We are restful when ordinary life is enough. We are restful when ordinary life is enough. And that's what Sabbath teaches us. You know, uh, I have some practical things on how do we do that, but before we get into it, I wanted to be clear that Scripture is clear about Sabbath being a 24-hour period of time to rest. But know that this is not something that is held above you. This is like, you know, this isn't God coming at you like, you got to do these things. you got to get it right. Come on, man. No, this is, this is a gift from God. This is a, a way of engaging life, a way of ordering your steps uh, day to day and week to week. So that we have a life that's full of gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. And John Mark Comer in his sermon, uh, Pastor Adis, uh, Portland, Oregon, said on his message on Sabbath, he said, rest is a weapon. It is really hard to tempt people that are healthy, happy, and well-rested. Really easy to tempt people that are tired and stressed out. Hear me clearly, everyone, that I, I come in and talk to you about Sabbath, not out of oh, a place where I want to guilt trip you or, or throw condemnation or shame. You're like, oh man, I haven't been doing that. And the thought of trying to do a 24 hour period of stopping and resting is like, that sounds insurmountable. That's not the point here. The point here is we need rest. We all, I think we all can agree that any, any time you talk to someone like, hey, how's, how's life going? How's it going? I'm busy. I'm tired. COVID has been terrible. 2020 has been a nightmare. So we deeply yearn for rest, and this is the gift of Sabbath. 
that as we struggle to engage and participate in Sabbath, we will find rest. That's the promise. That as we work it out and, and, con- and when we fall, we get back up and we keep, we keep working, we keep engaging Sabbath, that we will find rest for your souls. So three ideas for practicing Sabbath here now in our 21st century modern world. And then we're gonna conclude with a song. The first is stop your reliance on technology. Hit a wrong button, gotta go, see you at lunch, we're done. This is tough, this is hard. I'm literally preaching from a uh, a device right here. And hear me on this, that the technology is not evil. It's not the great evil of our time that is here to ruin us and destroy our lives, but it wants your time. The developers and the businesses behind technology, the way they make money is by you giving them your time. And the way to break from that is to stop our reliance on it. What does that look like? It could look anything from 10 minutes every day, you shut your phone off and put it away, Every night you say 9 p.m., whatever, that's my cutoff. I turn my phone off, I put it on the charger. Or some families, um, they'll go like to the nth degree and they get these boxes that are meant to like hide your cookies, which I don't know why you do this, but you put like a food item in it and then it locks and you literally cannot open it until the timer goes off. So you just put all your phones in it and then someone breaks it because we can't, that's too much. We can't lock our phones away. Come on, please. But the, the pieces, and I don't give a, a specific way to stop reliance on technology because it's gonna be different for all of us. Every single one of us has an app or something in our phones and our computers that we love and we will happily give all of our time to. For me, it's Instagram. I can scroll on that thing forever. Even when it gets to the point where it's like, everyone that you follow, they stop posting. So here's some random content. I'm like, sweet, keep it going, you know? So for me, learning to stop my reliance on technology is not gonna look the same as you. But the goal is to learn to disengage from it, to engage something else, to engage God in stopping in the practice of stopping something, saying that's enough for today. Second is delight in something uh, and do it consistently. Um, Whether it's food, golfing, reading a book, walking in a park, cutting down trees, I don't know, like whatever you do that you go, man, like this, I love doing this. Do it. Get, get, uh, if you're not a planner or if you are a planner, plan for it. Put a time in your week where you know you're going to do that. That for me, it's reading. So I want to make sure I'm reading. I try to read every day. I'm not the best at it because I'm also really lazy. Uh, if you're not sure, you ask my parents, they're here. They would love to tell you how lazy of a student I was in school. But that's not the point. The point is find something you delight in, something that gives you life, and then commit to engaging with it, distraction-free. So that can look like getting, putting your phone away, put it somewhere else. Or maybe uh, being not distracted in a good way is inviting people into it. If you love cooking, share that love with other people. I love eating, so invite me over. I would love to eat your, your cooking, that's great. Or maybe I'll try cook. My mom got me Instant Pot. I know how to throw things in it and turn it on. But delight in something consistently. Lastly, it's the invitation to engage the Sabbath in rest. And this is hard, like, we've, like I've been saying. Um, but the way to do it is to start somewhere. Look at your schedule. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're like, I do not have time. 
Like I have work that I have to be at and then this thing's going on and I, ha- I have to do that. And there's consistently things in your life that are just out of your control. Like you literally can't change w- what day and what time it's happening. But Sabbath can start somewhere. You can start Sabbath by an hour, have an hour a week of unplugging your phone and just resting, just sitting in a hammock, taking a nap. I have a novel idea. What if we went to bed on time? That's for me, not you guys, sorry. I haven't been going to bed lately. But go to bed at a decent time. Get a good night's rest. Like, God wants that for your life because when we're rested, when, we, when ordinary life is enough, then we don't have to run around with our heads chopped off and, and constantly running to this and that and the next thing and over there and experiencing a life of burnout and pain. So again, those three things are stop your reliance on technology, delight in something consistently and engage the Sabbath. However that looks for you. If you have a family, get the family together and sit down together and say, how could we do this together? Even for young kids, it's a beautiful way uh, to, maybe it's just a meal. Um, Someone I follow who uh, has taught on Sabbath, what, what they do on the night of their Sabbath is they cook a giant cookie in like a cast iron skillet and then take a whole gallon of ice cream and dump it on top of it after it's done cooking and just sit around it and eat carb overload to celebrate the beginning of their Sabbath. I'm like, I can get behind that. That's the Sabbath I'm talking about. But find what it is, find a way to rest and be purposeful in it and engage in it. Because again, the point is not to do something. If we're just doing something, it becomes a ritual and it becomes something that no longer is life-giving. Jesus said, come to me and you will find rest. That is what's on offer, rest. So if you're engaging in Sabbath and you're finding it's not restful, it's not Sabbath, cut it out, see ya, see you later. Find what it is in Sabbath that, that is restful for you. And a question that uh, I, I didn't come up with this, but I came across it and it's been extremely helpful for me in, in determining uh, if something is, is beneficial for Sabbath. If, you know, and that, because thinking about a 24 hour time period, like what do I do for 20, for even 10 hours? Like what do I do for 10 hours when I'm stopping stuff? You know, normally it's like Netflix for a while and then Instagram for a little bit and then, Maybe I look outside and I'm like, nah, it's too hard to go outside. I don't want to do that. You know, there's a lot of, that's a lot of time. And the question that I found that helps with gauging what is going to be uh, beneficial and, and actually help me engage in Sabbath is this. Is, is this thing, whatever it is I'm going to do, uh, you know, Netflix or this book or going for a walk or hanging out with friends, whatever it is, is this life-giving or is this life-draining for me? That's it. If something is life-giving to you, do it on the Sabbath. That's a part of Sabbath. If it's draining for you, see ya. Gotta find another day. There's six other days to do that thing. This one day is blessed and set apart for me to rest just as my creator God did when he created the world. To close, we're gonna take some time. Uh, I wanted to take time to engage in worship and actually just very briefly practice resting. Um, We all live busy and crazy lives. And to wrap up, we're gonna engage, uh, the worship team's gonna lead us in a song. And rather than engaging uh, by standing and raising our hands, uh, which is totally fine, I wanna invite you and encourage you to engage in this song by just sitting back and, and listening 
to the lyrics. Take the next few moments, maybe just to close your eyes and just to let it all go and just to like be here, that ordinary life, where you are right now with the people around you is enough. You know, let the lyrics wash over you. Think about those. Think about our text this morning. Think about Sabbath, loved ones, or nothing. But I encourage you to, to engage in this song by just simply resting and being in it. So worship team, uh, if you would come and lead us. Thank you.